0: Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Peter Jones. I'm a partner in the TMT team here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Before uh, I introduce the panel, I do want to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So welcome very much to this, a continuation of our Herbert Smith Freehills Future Cities campaign. Uh, For those of you who have not uh, read the report that we've produced. I do recommend it. It's a thoroughly excellent read. Uh, and indeed, Nick has also provided a number of awesome articles that support some of the, the findings of that particular report. Um, in some respects, obviously, the title of the session was intentionally provocative in terms of will tech eat our cities. And we, do, we were certainly not suggesting a dystopian view of the future. But it's important, I think, to have a think around the way technology sort of interacts with us, in and the way that is, in some cases, obvious and in some cases not. Um, in two thousand and seven, the UN or the UN estimates that two thousand and seven was the first year in which more people lived in urban areas as opposed to country areas. Which is, when you think about it, with a, the with a globe around, what is it, eight billion people? That's quite remarkable. Coincidentally, two thousand and seven was also the year that the very first iPhone. Was introduced now. I'm not necessarily saying those things are correlated, but it is interesting because what we have seen through things like smartphones, increased connectivity and ubiquitous connectivity, mobile connectivity, there has been a revolution or an evolution, depending on where you sit, around how people embrace life and move around. That's allowed things to happen that and cities. I think a absolutely an area where they germinate those ideas because of the density of people that live here. Um, There's been new business models, so ride sharing, for example, or delivery that got us through COVID. Um, The other thing, I guess, is that that's all well and good, and yes, there's a lot of opportunity that comes from that, but one person's convenience is probably one person's surveillance. Uh, one person's uh, convenience could also be, in some cases, one person's uh, opportunities. I'm just thinking there around sort of cybercrime or e-crime as a result of the way in which we go and walk and spread this sort of data detritus that we leave behind wherever we go and not necessarily knowing what's going to happen to it. So getting that balance right between embracing technology that enables positive outcomes for individuals versus protecting people against aspects of technology is I think really important and is a discussion that is ongoing and will continue to to be something that is ongoing for quite some time. It is not just a legal challenge. It is not just a regulatory challenge. It's not just a political challenge. It's a societal challenge. It's a challenge for all of us. And I look through that through the prism of my 13 year old twins and go, yeah, their life will be fundamentally different to the life that I actually had. So we are going to have, I hope, and I'm sure a very, excellent conversation around some of these challenges and trying to get that balance right and look what works and, and what doesn't. Um, in terms of the panel today, I'm not gonna go through the bios in depth because I know that you've already seen them and frankly, we've got more important things to do than listen to me read out a bio. But if I can start from my far extreme there, Tibor Schwartz, who is Senior Advisor, Asset Management at QIC Global Infrastructure. Uh, next to Tibor is RV Naidu, Co-Founder and Managing Director of Taronga Group. Uh, And then, sorry, not finally, sorry, Nick. Um, Then Amy Brown, uh, Chief Executive Officer, Investment New South Wales, and Nick Carney, Partner from Herbert Smith Freehills. I think I'm right in saying as well, T. that you are not a lawyer, which makes you in the minority of one in terms of everyone on the panel here. And here, in terms of at least who have been lawyers, but at least half of them have decided to do something vastly more interesting. I suspect so. With that, I'm going to hand over to you, Nick, to take us through the rest of the panel, uh, and uh, then I'll be back at the end just to conclude. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you very much, Peter. Can everyone hear me? Yeah. So first of all, I just wanted to echo Peter's thanks uh, and welcome and say great to see you all here. This is one of the first events, certainly the first event that I've hosted um, at the firm since, um, since COVID, so it's just wonderful having all of you in the room, even if we can't have as many of you as uh, historically we might have. Um, as Peter said, today's event is the next in a series of events we've had around the future of our cities. We held a very big event in relation to autonomous vehicles a couple of years ago. We have been looking, we launched the Future Cities Report last year, but released a number of podcasts. Um, we're planning to have a Melbourne event coming up soon, um, topic to be decided, but but probably around decarbonising our cities. Um Truly excited to have such a fantastic panel with us today um, as we explore this. I think there's two things that I would like to emphasise at the beginning of the session. And one is when we talk about the future of our cities and the opportunities and the challenges, it is really important to have a diverse group of people with diverse groups of perspectives. um, And that we definitely have that on today's panel. Um, uh, And, you know, to that point, I think Amy's comment when I asked her was, I'm not a technologist, you know, you should talk to my husband, um, who, uh, who who is is really focused on smart cities. And and I think the point here is the solutions that we are going to talk about and explore today are solutions that need to take into an, into account a range of considerations. Um, the other um, thing I wanted to emphasise is um, we will make this available as a podcast after the event. And um, one thing that we've been really keen to do is share learnings from different parts of the world um, and the work and the things that we are seeing in different parts of the world. Just to give you a a few highlights, um, our London team is working with BP and BP are... Teaming up with cities, um, particular cities uh, like Houston and some other cities, uh, to help them on decarbonising project, which I think is really, really interesting. Our team in the Middle East is working with um, the Saudi government as they develop the Neom city, which is calling it a city seems like um, an understatement. It's four hundred, it, it, it occupies four hundred and sixty kilometres along the Red Sea coast, um, and the, the scale and the um, and the the ambition around that project um, leaves anything that Amy and her team um, um, are doing. They're very ambitious, but 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 what, what the Saudi government is trying to do um, is incredible. I guess um, they, they, uh, it's a different, different sort of operating system over there. And we're, of course, doing a lot of work with the Western Parkland City Authority as they work on the Aerotropolis, and I know there are some folks in the room who are also involved in that. So without further ado... I would like to ask the, the panellists maybe just to explain how their particular role relates to future cities and the future of our cities. So perhaps, Amy, would you like to go first?
2: Thank you, Nick. Um, Peter, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I, I used to work at Herbert Smith Freehills, but uh, the professional indemnity insurance here is not high enough <laughs> for me to continue as a lawyer. So uh, my practising certificate is no longer valid devastating um so now what i do is i'm chief executive officer of investment new south wales we are 10 weeks old um and we were set up by the premier to make new south wales the most desirable place in the world uh to invest to do business uh to visit to study um and to Michael Rodriguez, 24-Hour Economy Commissioner, go out. Um, and also and in that note, to be um, the most livable city in the world as well. So in order to do this, we brought a bunch of economic development activities together from across government. Uh, and so that the idea is that we leverage the state's successful handling of the pandemic um, and our reputation globally as a safe and attractive place to do business. Uh, We've been called um, the front door or the one-stop shop. I think they those terms kind of imply that we're a bit passive, whereas we're actually not. We're actually deliberately pursuing global business in particular priority sectors and industries where we can create the most economic benefit, the most jobs and the most kind of ambitious future. Um, And in order to do that, we've got uh, offices all around the world So we've got a global network that we are putting uh, more resourcing into and uh, creating a hub and spoke model. Uh, We've got um, all of the kind of investment attraction activity uh, that includes business concierges and big funds that we can deploy to assist businesses. Um, Destination New South Wales, who can market us on the world stage, chief scientist who can look after all the R&D activity, uh, Mike Rodriguez, who can make us a whole lot more fun um, and and a bunch of stuff. So the reason I'm um, interested in this topic is making our cities uh, smarter will have long lasting impact on business and investment a couple of things I speak to a lot of global companies and say what would you like to invest in and the number of them that say smart cities um, so what is the global kind of uh, know-how and capital that we can use to drive our smart cities outcomes but then I need great places to sell so, when I'm saying to businesses, set up your headquarters here, bring your talented people here, study here, move your family here, uh, it's got to be a pretty special place or else people won't come. So, that's why I'm interested in what role that technology can play in that. And Arvi,
3: Thanks, Nick. Um- it is It is actually really great to be at a, a live event. I think this is one of my first in a, in a long time as well, so pretty excited to be here. Um, my role in, uh, I guess, future cities and technology, so we, Taronga Ventures, is a built environment uh, technology investor, so we invest into technology and innovation for the built world, real estate infrastructure, um, increasingly into energy, into all sorts of areas. Um, uh, we we call this real asset tech or real tech Um Quite distinct from some of the other terminology that's out there, such as prop tech. Um, we are almost a private version, or, or almost a private version of what um, Amy sort of talked about. We we um, we help major um, industry owners, uh, developers, so the largest uh, real estate investment trusts, um, integrated infrastructure owners. Uh, invest um, into these technologies and use them. So we've got three parts of our business. We've got a venture capital fund, which uh, is invested into by these sorts of groups, the so groups like Mitsubishi Corporation, um, CBRE out of the US, large money managers uh, who look for these technologies uh, to implement into their assets. Um, and then we've also got a government backed um, uh, growth stage program, the largest in Asia now um, backed by initially the federal government in Australia and now, Backed by the Singaporean government, and hopefully soon we'll be announcing uh, a government in the northern hemisphere. What this basically does is identifies leading technologies for the built world, takes them through a scaling program, and helps them to grow around the uh, around the world. Um, and then the last part of our business is we've got a consulting arm which helps uh, uh, government and major owners deal with this innovation challenge that's happening. So we, as um, as an asset class, are going to experience the largest. Uh, change uh, as a result of technology, we've seen the fintech wave, we've seen all these different changes across uh, different parts of our uh, our economy. Um, real estate, which is the largest asset class in the world, uh, 270-odd trillion US dollars, if you take um, estimates by some of the pundits out there, we that, that sector is going to see the biggest disruption. So um, we help these large owners and operators navigate that change.
1: Thank you. And Tibor?
4: Thank you, Nick. Um, and um, it's, it's really a pleasure to be here today. And uh, it's um, uh, nice to meet you, uh, everyone on the panel. And um, I'm from QIC. We are a fund manager owned by Queensland Government. Uh, we have um, currently about 25 clients in global infrastructure that uh, together have uh, a combined um, capital pool of over $3 trillion. So we've got some of the largest investors, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and similar institutions from around the world, um, mostly from North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Uh, well, how we touch cities is, is in multiple ways. Uh, our three principal areas of investment are um, um, energy and utilities, transport infrastructure, and uh, social infrastructure. And um, if I think uh, where where we where we deploy this capital it's um, mostly in Australia today and some in Europe and some in North America. we are already um, enabling quite a bit of uh, significant changes that happen in this society today so we operate the largest uh, portfolio of renewable generation in Australia we have some uh, some of the more important transportation assets such as the largest container port in this country um, in uh, North America we operate some of the transportation and energy and utility assets. Now, how we really touch um, the changing world in terms of technology, and uh, that is my role, is uh, is to really look for opportunities to align ourselves with major trends. So for us, it's all about decarbonization, decentralization, digitization, and democratization of data. And so from that perspective, um, and just like, um, my colleague just touched on about global real estate being such a huge investment category i, I would put in a very similar category what what's happening in terms of energy transition uh, as you know um, every um, advanced country in the world um, has some target in terms of um, in terms of um, decarbonization and uh, for for us, the role is really is, is to steer the investments on behalf of our clients and to deploy that capital into, uh, I would say, that the most uh, secure and, and the most important projects around the world and that will enable decarbonisation. So technology is a very core part of it. And, uh, and my role is, is really working with uh, every one of our 20 assets around the world. Uh, and in in terms of improving asset management and deploying technology. And the second one is really looking at origination. And when when I think about energy transition, this country obviously has a massive opportunity around not only being significant in terms of the uh, local market and renewable generation, but to really um, change the face of transportation in this country and and really create uh, opportunities uh, for the uh, next generation of uh, large scale, energy export business that will be based on renewables. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Tibor. It's, uh, I don't know about you guys, but when I go to a panel, there's usually one person at least on the panel who I have a, you know, who I desperately want to swap my job for their job. I find that I'm sitting on a panel with three of those (laughs) people at the moment. So so I, I think that's been really helpful. And as I said at the beginning, different. Yeah, the, the things we're going to talk about today, different perspectives are really important and the different angles that everyone's um, approaching this from is really important. Um, so I guess my first question is, um, this is something I'll ask all of you, but start with Amy, is, is how do you and, and um, how do you think about the role that technology can and should play in the future of our cities? Like wearing a government hat, a policymaker hat, how do you make decisions around this?
2: Great. I've done a lot of thinking about this and spoken to a lot of people. That's why I have my notes here there are so many good ideas. But um, I'll start by saying cities are about people. Um, so when we think about technology, we need to think about technology as enabling people. Um, and to steal from the Smart Cities Customer Charter, smart places embrace digital solutions to create a more livable future. They should be innovative inclusive and customer focused and designed as a partnership between government and community um, to create solutions, not only for the place itself, but to actually meet the needs of the citizens. And so to me, that says anything that we do um, to infuse technology into the built environment needs to start, um, the built environment or the natural environment needs to start with what people want and how do people behave. And so that's the lens through which I think we need to look at technology in cities. Two other comments I'll make, um, and Nick, you've already said it, so now I need to just close to the audience. Um, Smart Places strategy um, and engaging with industry for government is led by Simon Hunter and Rory Brown, and one of those with the same last name as me happens to be my husband. So um, shout out. Um, And (laughs) poor thing, he's watching Netflix at 8.30 last night. I'm like, hey. (laughs) So... But it was a great conversation because you know a couple of things. One is making sure that we're thinking smart right from when we are planning and designing, um, and doing that engaging with community right from the beginning. And that's when we get into all these you know buzzwords like digital twin, um, and you know seeing the impact of our infrastructure and our decisions in three D, including on the you know carbon agenda, urban heat, etc. Um, but I won't get too technical because you asked me and not him. Um, but also enabling. The outcome, the kind of enabling piece and the future proofing piece. So that's your digital plumbing, um, your, you know, making sure that the, you know, the future connectivity backbone. And that's when we're looking at stuff like 5G and internet of things. And, you know, speaking to the experts, they say, if we actually get uh, the 5G enablement right and the internet of things starting to kind of do its piece with what the citizen needs at the centre then suddenly we're all having an even better experience with our places but we can get on to some of the policy implications of that later
1: no that uh, thank you thank you for that um and and it was interesting because i you know when we were chatting about this you said are we better off having rory on the panel and and actually i thought no, I actually think that um i love rory I love rory but but um but I think that one of the things that government needs to do is government needs to balance a whole range of policy objectives, some of which are um you know should be technology led and others should be balancing different perspectives around priorities planning et cetera and i so I think it's a really you know it's really interesting to get a central government perspective on that um Avi, what from what's your perspective on on how you think you know how do you think about the role that technology can but also should play like how you know what should it play in the future of our cities
3: um I'm I'm absolutely delighted that Amy talks about the the people centric design of all of this stuff. Um, you know, a city is 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 nothing but a collection of people um, uh, artificially put together with a bunch of concrete. Um, so it is so important to understand that human experience, understand um, and increasingly preempt that human experience. I think that's what technology is allowing us to do more so now, is to better understand our citizens and preempt that. The, the thing that we're talk, spending a lot of our time um, talking about, and this is the kind of the role that technology should play in those in um, decision-making positions should be thinking more about, um, is uh, the being more sympathetic to, um, our natural environment. And that's kind of my way of talking about sustainability without saying sustainability. Um, we, we need, um, you know, it we can't reinforce this enough. I, the, the idea that, um, we can have a, um, conversation about, um, human experiences within a city without thinking about a sustainable element to that, um, is sort of, past us now. Uh, What's really exciting for us is we represent some of the largest developers of of infrastructure and real estate and the number one priority for us now and that's being led by their boards is thinking about technologies that will drive sustainability. the, the,
1: what are some examples
3: of that? So, um, you know, I love talking about concrete. Um, so the, the least the least sexy thing in the world, concrete. Um, if you take the numbers, um, many of you would know these numbers. The Green, World Green Build, Building Council says that about 40% of all emissions come from the built environment. About 28% of that is from the operation of the built environment, so lights and other energy used. But 11% of that comes from the embodied carbon in the construction process. About 50% of that is steel and concrete. And so if we are not addressing the concrete, um, issue, we've got, um, the, the, the concrete issue actually gives us a great opportunity. So we're, we're a, um, plug, um, we're an investor in a, in a North American company called Carbon Cure, which takes existing carbon out of the atmosphere, uh, puts it into concrete. So sequesters the carbon that process creates a calcification of the carbon, which means you effectively use less cement, and cement's the biggest pollutant in concrete. Um, Therefore, you've done two things. You've taken carbon out of the atmosphere and used less cement. Um, Net on net, at the moment, we can reduce carbon by about 5%. We have a roadmap to reduce carbon to about 30%. Um, and last year we invested into this company with Amazon and Microsoft where both of those technology leaders have committed to rolling out their data centers, their logistics facilities um, with carbon cure concrete. What's really exciting in North America is government is now forcing their developers and their partners to use green cement. And I think there's a real opportunity for us in Australia to start to mandate some of these things because the technology exists. The challenge we face, and we're facing it right now, is the um the the layers of um approval and um acceptance because we're also used to using a particular type of concrete
1: what about cost how is cost
3: it's this is the the best bit nick um it's it's cost neutral so it's the same as current concrete and in fact if you really think this through you're the person who owns the concrete um theoretically has also created a carbon credit and therefore it, it may not only be
4: cost neutral but there may be a cost reduction as a result
1: yeah okay I mean that's really really interesting table what's your perspective
4: uh, I think just just to build on that we as uh, infrastructure operators uh, have the opportunity to be uh, early adopters it, it's not easy because if you think a lot of infrastructure companies come from highly regulated spaces they are not naturally uh, attracting people that are digital and other technology innovators, so this is a key challenge we have so there is uh, i think um, um Absolutely an unending um, um, parade of new technologies that really are addressing some core areas that uh, that were touched on by uh, others on this panel. The challenge I think for cities and for infrastructure operators is to how to make it investable and that there is uh, there is certainly a role there for governments. There is, there is a role for cities. There is a role for all levels of governments to be, to be very proactive in that space. At the same time, if there is not an investment proposition, it's very difficult uh, to actually embed it into some of these existing large scale infrastructure assets and so what we're doing in that space is is to really not only understanding opportunities but uh, working with innovative companies uh, such as the ones that uh, you are investing in um, to uh, to be one of their really one of their early customers to prove these models and specifically also about australia um, I, I think there is um, there is uh, some real um, success story here for fintech and for other areas of technology that uh, actually is uh, making some real um, mark on on a global stage. I think there is something similar when it comes to cities and when it comes to infrastructure. Uh, We would like to be an an enabler to give opportunities to these type of companies to work with us. So we have a relationship with uh, really hundreds of companies around the world. We've got a long-term relationship with leading universities. We always work on what is the next theme that really drives infrastructure. We've got a long term partnership with Stanford on that we've got a lot of partnerships with local universities. And uh, for us, um, the, the point is that we recognize that infrastructure has a lot to that can be improved, but we, we, have, we also recognize the challenges we have and challenges are human. Technologies are there. It, it's about how we can adopt them and what sort of people we have that, that are able to drive it. Now, what we do as an investor in that regard, because we are um, always there with a, a significant position, uh, we've got a way to influence that at a board level. We've got a way to impre- to influence that at a management level, and we are a long-term investor. So, our opportunity is very much about uh, not not being tactical and uh, get excited about five G or six G, but really looking at if you've got an asset such as um, um, such as a board which is the major commercial gateway for a country, it's uh, for us uh, that's, that there was a concession with uh, Port of Melbourne for 50 years, which, which is in the first decade of its operation. So for us, it's a matter of what are the, some of the key things we can do uh, that can improve that asset, that can improve the quality of life in, in adjacencies. In, in this case, it's, it's a city port. And thirdly, it is about enabling the local and global technology companies that want to help us to improve that type of asset.
1: Just just on that, Tibor, so when you're thinking about, um, and whenever I talk to Tibor, he's just come from a university or he's just gotten off a call with a university and, and like so he's, very active in the commercialization process that is happening, and 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 yeah. I, sometimes, if someone were to ask me what Tibor's job it is, I'd call him a technology sherpa. He uh, he sort of goes around, sort of identifying and helping move technologies out and 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 deploy them. Um, how you know? How do you think about it? How do you how do you make a decision to go and implement it? Do you use a pilot? How do you De-risk and then scale it, um, because as you say, infrastructure assets are long-term. You know they're, they're often um, people often perceive them to be not very dynamic, but that's not necessarily a fair a fair per- perspective.
4: I think it's 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 a, a very fair perspective. <laughs> <laughs> well, I take it back. <laughs> Yeah, look, uh, I think that we uh, we have an approach that it, it's about fast fail. It's about having a factory of innovation for some of these assets. And so you need to have a set of KPIs that actually measure what is the level of activity and uh, are we actually trying new things? Uh, are we failing in some things? Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, eventually, we've got some things that can be adopted. So this kind of approach uh, for every infrastructure asset is it's actually low risk uh, because these this, uh, Technology trials and pilots are very um, limited uh, financial exposure, really. But uh, again, that's not a limitation. The limitation is is a human factor. And uh, do we have the right management teams and the right incentives to really drive that innovation? Sure. You
0: have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.